something that maybe I should have made clear last week, but I didn't, especially before we read 1 John in its entirety to conclude that sermon, is that 1 John has a purpose statement. And that purpose statement can help to understand the letter as a whole. But before I point you to where that purpose statement is, I want to tell you the purpose statement of the Gospel of John first. Because the difference between the two is also important. Listen to this from John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Again, this was the Gospel of John. The Apostle wrote this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. There's the purpose statement right there. He wrote the gospel so that by believing, you and I may have life in his name. So you can read the entirety of the gospel of John with that purpose statement in mind. Now let me read to you the purpose statement from 1 John 5.13. You can turn there if you want to. John writes this to the churches. I write these things to you who believe, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you see the distinction? The Gospel of John, purposed for initial faith and for growth in faith. We've preached through John here before. You know that it's good for growth in faith. But the purpose statement of 1 John is for the believer to know that he or she has eternal life. It's about assurance, explicitly assurance, that those who are in Christ may know that they have eternal life. There is a progression of purpose from the gospel to the first letter, belief to assurance. Stephen Charnock wrote, assurance is the fruit that grows out of the root of faith. Assurance is the root, is the fruit that grows out of the root of faith. I dare say that this is the experience of maturing faith for all of us who are in Christ. Let me explain. If you look back to that time when you came to faith in Christ, you might be able to identify a crisis of conviction. A crisis of conviction where you were initially humbled in your sin and you cried out in belief, trusting that Christ's death counted for you. This is the miracle of rebirth, that there is an instant, just like a baby has an instant where they are born and take a first breath, spiritually, the reality of new birth, rebirth, regeneration, is that there is an instant where the Spirit of God gives the gift of faith. The light of Christ tears through the veil of unbelief and gives us forgiveness and fellowship with God by grace through faith. Hallelujah. This is the testimony of the Christian. However, as time goes on, the idyllic experience of rebirth can wane. 
more directly your experience or my experience of darkness, the darkness of the world, perhaps the darkness of those you thought were with you in Christ. And if we're just frank with ourselves, the darkness of our own hearts can make us doubt the light. If this is resonating with you, you are not alone in this. Faith progresses to assurance for the child of God. And often, just as God supplied a crisis of conviction to initiate our faith, God in his mercy can also supply, does also supply, a crisis of dark doubts so that we would grow in our assurance. That's actually my story. And John writes to his spiritual children for the sake of their stories, for the sake of their assurance that though they may deeply feel the darkness, they can know that they are of the light. That though they may deeply feel the darkness, they can know that they are of the light. And so, Lord, this morning as we gather around your word, we ask that your spirit would speak to us. Exalt Christ the light in us. Again, help us bow to your word. Allow it to rule us, to fashion us, to make us more and more like Christ as we are assured by your spirit. Amen. So we approach the text this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 1, verses 5, through chapter 2, verse 2. If you remember from last week, we talked about the apostolic message that John was proclaiming. This reality that he was an eyewitness, yes, but almost here he stresses that he was an ear witness. He was an ear witness for the sake of their ears. Look in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. This is the message. John writes, speaks pretty bluntly oftentimes. This is the message. Hear this and believe this. No matter what else your ears or your heart might be telling you to believe, hear this. What is the content of this apostolic message that has been heard from Christ by John's ears and now passed on to theirs as he proclaims it to them? That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Why is this the message that John wants them to hear? Because John knows that our theology rules our reality. A.W. Tozer said, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. John would concur. 
Our theology rules our reality or the way that we assess our reality. So he says, God is light. This is what you need to know about God. He's absolutely moral. Perfect in his intellect. He is pure beyond pure. In God, there is no shadow mission, nothing hidden, no skeletons in his closet. He's never going to have a hashtag go viral about him. There are no deeper secrets about him to discover. God is light. And furthermore, God did not just stay in his lightness far off. God condescended down to the earth. He became known in the flesh perfectly through Jesus Christ. The God who is light proclaims himself as the light of the world. God is light. And yet, the second clause also brings this reality to bear. There is darkness. Not darkness in him, but there is darkness. Isaiah 9-2 says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And so, God's chosen people waited for that day when the light would appear. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, John writes, In Jesus was life, and aha, this life was the light of men. They needed light to shine in their darkness, and the light came down to them. God incarnate, Jesus in the flesh. Furthermore, in John chapter 3, as Stoller read earlier, this is the judgment. Yes, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Know this, when, when John talks about darkness, he's not just talking about like, well, our world is so broken, or I've just been feeling really sad, or any other ways that we might describe experiencing the darkness of light. He's not, he's not shoving those things to the side or ignoring them, but he's talking more specifically. When he's talking about darkness, he means wickedness. He means the evil, and specifically in this, the evil rejection of the light. When you think about it, is there anything worse than that? 
We can get caught up in kind of our, our sinful habits or the things that we just can't seem to kick. John emphasizes those are just idols. Important, yes, but they're not at the heart of idolatry. What he's saying is that the heart of idolatry is unbelief. That the light came into the world, and instead of bowing to the light, instead of saying, yes, light, come in, show me everything of me, purify me. Instead, the world shunned the light, rejected the light. That is the essence of evil that John is pointing to. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. To which Jesus later says in the Gospel of John, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So if you are here this morning and you have dark doubts about God, dark doubts about God, whether he can be trusted What is his shadow mission? How do I interpret who God seems to have been in the Old Testament? What can I talk about? What can I think about when it talks about the judgment that is to come? And those are the things that you just seem to be wrestling with and wondering about. Can I just encourage you with this? Cast the light of Christ on them. Because you cannot know God until you realize the reality of Jesus Christ. Don't try to bifurcate separate the father from the son, saying, well, the father seemed like a mean dude in the Old Testament. Jesus, on the other hand, I like. They're united. They're the Trinity. You can only read the Old Testament through the person of Christ. Furthermore, the Old Testament points us to Christ. So allow yourself to be in that swing. Don't try to interpret God without Jesus. So, having said that this is the message, God is light and in him is no darkness at all, John moves on to assure them that, they may, that though they may deeply feel the darkness, they can know that they are of the light with two instructions. Number one, beware the descent into darkness. Beware the descent into darkness. And number two, walk in the light. You may have seen a documentary called The Deepest Cave about a months-long expedition to explore Cheve Cave in Oaxaca, Mexico. This expedition was trying to establish Cheve Cave as the deepest cave in the world. Didn't quite happen. Currently, it's 11th. But a few things are striking in this documentary. Number one, the darkness. Number two, the relational separation between the surface and the spelunkers, the cavers that were descending down into the depths of the cave. Number three, the seven base camps that had to be established deeper and deeper and deeper so that supplies could keep coming, positioned these seven base camps where they were because ultimately they were descending to 12 kilometers, 
12 kilometers below the surface of the earth. So it's the darkness, relational separation, these base camps, and finally, the pretzel twists that these people had to put themselves through to get through the tightest of spaces to try to open up into large caverns. If you're afraid of small spaces, maybe don't watch the documentary. It can be uncomfortable. But I bring up that illustration about this cave because John wants his people to be aware, to beware and be aware of the descent into darkness that is possible. And he sets up or identifies three base camps that are moving deeper and deeper into darkness. The first one is this, lying to a brother. Look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Here's the situation. Someone says, I have fellowship with Christ. Again, that's what John had been talking about in verses 1 through 4. I have fellowship with Christ. But when I'm not in church, I kind of do my own thing. I can pretty much walk any way that I want. I'm good. Me and God, we're like this. I've got fellowship with him. And he gives me the freedom to kind of do whatever I want. Yet John says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, while we walk, again, remember darkness equals wickedness, which equals rejecting the light. If we walk in darkness, purposely rejecting the light, rejecting its call on our lives, we lie and do not practice the truth. Why do I say this is lying to a brother? That's because within the fellowship, which is what John is addressing here, the fellowship is the people of God being together. What he's saying here is this. This is an actual conversation. This is somebody coming up and saying, hey, so um, like, how are things going? I, I saw this on your Instagram. Or um, the, the way that I heard you respond to your kid, um, can we talk about that? Like, what's going on in your heart? I haven't seen, I just haven't seen a warmth of heart in you towards Christ. There are two directions that conversation can go. It can go, yeah, it's been tough. It's been tough. And I fail. Thank you for bringing it up. Would you pray for me in that? Or the conversation can be like, um, we're good. We're good. Um, just don't touch the private things in my life, please. And all of a sudden, that relationship starts to splinter. That's first base camp, base camp lying to a brother. Second one is lying to ourselves. Go to verse 8. If we say, again, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
Once you lie to somebody else, it becomes all the easier to lie to yourself. What I've been doing, this darkness I've been walking in, this isn't sin. I'm forgiven, remember? The grace of God is sufficient for me. So if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John is drawing a delineation here. Bro, if you're saying you don't have sin, you're not grappling with the reality of the darkness in your own heart. The growing reality is that it's very possible the truth is not in you. Second descent. And the third descent is the worst of all. Third base camp, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Nah, I'm good. Thanks for asking. Not. I really am good. What I'm doing is just doing me. I'm not a sinner. God's the liar, not me. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. These three if we say is the base camp that I've, base camps I've identified. Their claims, we think, of a group called the secessionists. That's what they're often called in commentaries. They're not like an identified group in terms of knowing exactly who they were or exactly what they believed, but it seems like the Apostle John knew who they were and knew who they believed, knew what they said, and so John is proclaiming this message to his spiritual children to counteract these if-we-says that the secessionists have been spreading in their ears. Later on in chapter 2, it talks about the people that have left them. And John says, if they had stayed with us, they would be of us. But because they have not stayed with us, they are not of us. There was something in their belief that was not just like a difference of opinion. This was a faith separator. Their identities were being called into question in Christ. These secessionists had left the fellowship. They were looking for something, something deeper. They had twisted themselves into spaces of false belief, moving down from one base camp of deceit to the next, further separating themselves from the fellowship and finding the darkness deeper still. To the point where they say, me, a sinner? God's the liar. We don't know these secessionists, but we know separatists. We know those who, even here, were among us for a time. Or they might be people that you went to school at Moody with. Or a brother or a sister, speaking like blood family wives that at one point seemed to display the fruit of the Spirit, seemed to love Jesus. And now they've given up on him and his people. We know separatists, and 
the darkness of those who we thought were of us walking away from the light. And it's heartbreaking. Where does their descent, where did their descent begin? It begins on this slippery slope just like it did for the secessionists. Oftentimes lying to a brother or sister. God's okay, but he doesn't have much to say about this. And I don't think you should have much to say about this. My faith is my own private thing. Don't judge me. And so they get on this slippery slope, descending into darkness. So they lie to themselves. If God hasn't taken care of this, it could be he didn't provide this for me or he didn't break this sin pattern for me. I'm just struggling here. If God hasn't taken care of this, then I'm going to take care of it myself. Indulge myself in some way. Because I'm not sinning. I'm just taking care of myself in a way that God showed that he couldn't. I gave him his time and he failed. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So separatists begin this sad descent, lying to one another, lying to us, lying to themselves, and ultimately God is the liar for them as well. How dare God call me a sinner? I don't need saving. God's the liar. Forget the church. I'm going to indulge my church hurt. Not really realizing that that very church, imperfect as it is, is the very body of Christ. Rejecting the light that dwells within his body. In Psalm 1-1, Sabrina read it earlier, the psalmist writes, blessed is the man who, and hear this, note the descent. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There is a descent in Psalm 1 for the wicked man. A, a further comfort in the unbelief, a further resting in a state of sin, which ends, did you hear it? It's sitting, this person is sitting in the seat of scoffers. God's the liar. Scoffer. God's the liar. Generally, the descent into darkness isn't a solo mission, as we see here. This person, this, the wicked one in Psalm 1-1 it's the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seat of scoffers. The descent into darkness isn't usually a solo mission. It's influenced. In 1 Corinthians 15, this is the famous resurrection chapter, as Paul writes the church in Corinth. And what he says in 15.12 is this. Paul incredulously says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It's like, this is what our whole faith is based on. The people like me, like the other apostles, have seen the, res the resurrected Christ, and you're saying, how can there be a resurrection of the dead? Then he gets to the point where he says, oh, I understand how you can think this. 
Because later on in that chapter, the end of verse 32, he says this, if the dead are not raised, hypothetically, we should respond, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised, then let's go for it. License in every way. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's no resurrection, so let's make the most of today. And Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. See, when you as a supposedly resurrected person make your life about being with people that are not actually resurrected, guess who gets influenced? You begin to take on the identity of the unresurrected and begin to doubt the very thing that is the core of your faith in Christ. But of course, we can't just look at the separatists. We have to look at the darkness of our own hearts, how we lie to one another, how we lie to ourselves, how sometimes that leads us in the, in the, in the roughness of life to even say things like, God is the liar. Where is he right now? Where is your truth? Some of us see ourselves on this descent. By God's grace, if you are on that descent, I pray that the Spirit would help you see that you are on that descent. Beware. The darkness only grows. The distance of fellowship only lengthens. And eternal death may be your final destination. But there's hope. Take note, dear child of God. Some of you right now might be thinking, this is me. I'm so full of sin and I just can't escape it. The patterns of my life seem unchangeable. But I want you to think about what we've just been talking about. It is not the existence of sin in your heart that ultimately casts doubt on your faith. It is the denial of sin that casts doubt on faith. So if you are still in the arena, if you are still saying, I don't know, by God's grace, I don't know how to defeat this, but it has to be defeated. I need Christ. Know that that is a good arena to be in. The descent into darkness has left the arena. So beware of the descent into darkness. Second, walk in the light. What does this mean? Let me turn back to 1 John here real quick. What does this mean? Let's look at how John responds to the three if we says. Verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So rather than lying to a brother, be true to your brother or sister. Walk in the light with him or her. See, true fellowship with one another, it's about the new we that Christ is, is creating in us. 
If you think the new creation is just about you, you're missing the glory of it. It's not about just making a new me. It's about making a new us, a new we. So rather than lying to a brother, be true to your brother. Walk in the light with him or her. Don't, don't somehow like put them off in those difficult conversations. In fact, look across to verse 10, chapter 2, where it says this, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. See, here's the thing. God's promise is this, that when we abide in the light together, sin will begin to lose its attraction. Darkness is stumbling. That's the place where we stumble. When we walk in the light together in fellowship with each other, having been cleansed by the blood of Christ, this is where we begin to enjoy the reality of being in the light. So love your brother, abide in the light. You might think, well, John's telling them, beware of the descent. So how must I ascend? Did you get that from verse 10? There's no ascent necessary. Why is there no ascent necessary? Because the light has come down. We so often think, how do I get my Christian life together? How do I send up to the heavens? And Jesus says, why are you working so hard? I'm the one that came down to you. Just abide in the light of the family, the fellowship that I have given you. Abide is to remain. Remain in the light of your family. Second of all, rather than lying to yourself, be true to yourself. Unless you feel like I'm going Disney on you, I'm not. But be true to yourself in a biblical way which is this, verse, sorry, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Being true to yourself biblically is reckoning with your wickedness, reckoning with your darkness, and saying there is a place for that darkness. The place for that darkness is in the light. Confessing your sin is how to be true to yourself. Bring it out into the light where there is no shame, where there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does this confession look like? Well, of course, we know this is before God. We know that before him, the one who is light, we can bring our sins there, and he will say, yes, I know. That's why Jesus died for you. Because I know the darkness is deeper than you can even comprehend. However, I should say not however, but and, this confession also has a public element to it. When he says, if we confess our sins, he's meaning, if we confess our sins with one another. What? That's, that's a level of candor and honesty and transparency I don't really want to go to. 
brother and sister, bow to the word of God. If there is habitual sin that is rising in you and you feel like you're alone in the arena, guess what? Invite others into the arena. Does this mean that you have to confess your sin up here in front of everyone? No, not necessarily. But I'll ask you this. Are you close enough with anyone else in the fellowship of believers to actually confess your sin to them? If this is a place where you just kind of come in and go out, then yeah, that's going to seem super uncomfortable. And your name is, now can I confess my sin to you? That's not what John is saying here. John is saying there's true fellowship. There's true connectivity within the body of Christ. So know one another well enough. You should have in your mind, these are the people that I can go to and talk with honestly about the darkness in my heart. You know, sometimes in Christian, uh, Christianese, this question will be asked. How's your walk? How's your walk? How would you answer that question? I'm not asking for hands to be raised. How would you answer that question? Well, let's see. I've been reading my Bible pretty consistently. My prayer life is decent. At least I pray before meals. We go through these things, like these measures, right? Would I get an A plus in my walk? How fast am I walking? Am I getting my spiritual steps in every day? What would John say to that question? John very simply would say this. Walk in the light. Walk in the light. Give up on your striving. It does not mean that we don't read our Bibles or pray, obviously, because that's what fellowship means. We, we have a connectivity with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, according to verse 3. But that's not the fullness of the essence of walking in the light. He says, walk in the light. That means walking on level ground, not feeling like you have to ascend to the heavens, but walking on level ground where the light falls with the fellowship of faith, the church, freely confessing and trusting that together and individually we are forgiven. That's how you can answer, how's your walk? By God's grace, my walk is good because I'm in church. I'm growing in the gospel I have Christian friends who know me and ask me tough questions, and I ask them tough questions sometimes too. And sometimes it can be uncomfortable, but that's part of Christian fellowship, Christian love, experiencing Christ's cleansing in community. Can I just say that that's why we at Edgewater strive to stick to this when it comes to doing church? We don't, we don't try to stick to our own mechanisms or our own ideas or our ways to somehow get us bigger or to some, somehow like to, to, to form like a seven-layer system of discipleship. No, it's because this morning, brother and sister, you're being discipled by Jesus himself. And you're being discipled by one another because you showed up here today. So please don't walk out the door without having some sort of conversation of consequence with someone else. Allow his discipleship to have full fruit in you this morning. 
by God's grace, would he continue to make us a healthy church? And this is also the travesty of unhealthy churches because this is the place. This is the people where we should be able to bring our darkness out into the light without condemnation, but with understanding, with prayer, with forgiveness, because we're in Christ. If a church cannot be that place, I'll just let that be out there. So stick close to one another. Stick close to the word and stick close to Jesus. The final if we is this, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What is John's answer to that? John gets very pastoral, speaking to his flock. Verse 1, chapter 2 is his answer. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's not erasing the darkness. He's not ignoring it. But he's saying, you're in Christ. I'm writing writing these things to you so that your life will become more and more of a portrait of the grace of God. So that you may not sin. But as a tender spiritual father, he continues on. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. So rather than saying, as that final base camp in darkness says, God is the liar, if you're wondering how do I bring out my sin into the light, my darkness, remember, to walk in the light is to say and believe God is the light. And he is in the light where we can walk. Our walking is not a, Jesus, wait up, you've got the light. It is a full-orbed reality of lightness within the fellowship of faith. So remain in the fellowship of faith and continue to walk in the light where he is so that we may not sin. But if we do, together we never forget Jesus Christ the advocate. What does he mean by the advocate? Well, look back up at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A lot of, a lot of us learned this verse in VBS or in day camp in the past. 1 John 1.9, 1 John 1.9. Settle down and realize what John's actually saying. There's a justice to God's forgiveness. And there's an advocate that claims that justice. Praise God. There is an advocate who is closer than a brother. He isn't just a public defender. No, in Christ, he is Christ. And we are united with him. So he steps into the courtroom of our dark hearts where God is doing his business 
And when we sin, Jesus steps to the fore and says, God, your justice has been satisfied by my blood. I advocate for Andy because, God, you are just. I appeal to your justice. Your forgiveness is real. He is clean. What an advocate. What a substitute. Verse 2, he is the, the propitiation for our sins. This is sacrificial language where someone else gets up on the altar, someone else gets in the electric chair, someone else climbs up on the cross that should be ours. And this is Jesus, the one who both propitiates and expiates our sin. What does that mean? Propitiates means there is wrath for God deserving of the sinner. And Jesus' death takes that wrath and turns it to favor. And on the other hand, Jesus says, this guy's a wretch, muddy in his sin from the inside out, but my blood cleanses him in every single way. He may feel like he is dirty, like he just got drugged through the mud. He may have been stuck out in the corner out here last Sunday morning when the floodwaters were rising and it was just dirty. And he may feel like that is more than just an external thing, like, oh, I've been behaving badly. I can't get this junk out of my heart. And Jesus says, listen, you're my brother. You're my sister. The favor of the Father is upon you. You have been cleansed, and I continue to cleanse you. This is the beauty of the blood of Jesus. Because in Jesus, in him who is no darkness, he is saying, and in my brothers and sisters, there will ultimately be no darkness either. There will come that day when that struggle will cease. There will come that day when we will be like him because we see him as he is. The arena will be done because we will be with our Lord. Can I read you a story to end? You may have read the Chronicles of Narnia. You may have read the first one or the second one, but did you make it to the silver chair? Yes? yes? All right, all right, all right. The silver chair is a story about Eustace Scrub and Jill Pole and Puddleglum the Marsh Wiggle. He's not human. The three of them are sent by Aslan, the king of Narnia, to go and try to find and rescue Prince Rillian. Prince Rillian was kidnapped 10 years ago, and no one knows where he is except Aslan. And he sends these three, an unlikely trio, to go and try to find Rillian. And he gives them some signs to follow. They feel like they're just all over the place. They're not really going to make it. They, they don't even know where they're going. They're just trying to obe be obedient day by day by day. Ultimately, they feel like they kind of stumbled into the fourth sign and they go to 
the underworld, the underland, which is ruled by the green witch. And after navigating the underland for a little while, they wind up in this chamber where there is a pompous prince. And certain things happen. I'll let you read the book for yourself to find out what those certain things are. But this prince ends up being Prince Rillian, the long sought after prince who had been held under the sway of the green witch for 10 years in Underland. He is freed from the sorcery that was holding him. But then the witch shows up. Then the witch shows up. And she begins to speak to now the four of them. And she throws some green powder into the fire. And a haze starts to develop in the room. And they start to kind of doubt their understanding of reality, even as they're there, as four people that are ultimately free from the sorcery of the witch, but in that moment, are feeling the darkness. Let me read to you. Jill says, No, I suppose that other world where we're from must be all a dream. Yes, it is all a dream, said the witch, always thrumming on her mandolin. Yes, all a dream, said Jill. There never was such a world, said the witch. No, said Jill and Scrub, never was such a world. There never was any world but mine, said the witch. There never was any world but yours said they. But Puddleglum was fighting hard. I don't know rightly what you all mean by a world, he said, talking like a man who hasn't enough air, but you can play that fiddle till your fingers drop off, and still you won't make me forget Narnia and the whole overworld too. We'll never see it again, I shouldn't wonder. You may have blotted it out and turned it dark like this, for all I know. Nothing more likely, but I know I was there once, I've seen the sky full of stars. I've seen the sun coming up out of the sea of a morning and sinking behind the mountains at night. And I've seen him up in the midday sky when I couldn't look at him for brightness. Now, Puddleglum's words had a very rousing effect. The other three all breathed again and looked at one another like people newly awaked. Why, there it is, cried the prince. Of course, the blessing of Aslan upon the honest Marsh Wiggle. We have all been dreaming these last few minutes. How could we have forgotten it? Of course we've all seen the sun. By Jove, so we have, said Scrub. Good for you, Puddleglum. You're the only one of us with any sense, I do believe. But then came the witch's voice again, cooing softly like the voice of a wood pigeon from the high elms in an old garden at three o'clock in the middle of a sleepy summer afternoon. And it said, what is this sun that you all speak of? Do you mean anything by the word? Yes, we jolly well do, said Scrub. Can you tell me what it's like? Asked the witch. Thrum, 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 went the strings. Please it your grace, said the prince, very coldly and politely. You see that lamp? It is round and yellow and gives light to the whole room and hangeth moreover from the roof. Now that thing which we call the sun is like the lamp. Only far greater and brighter, it giveth light to the whole overworld and hangeth in the sky. Hangeth from what, my lord? 
asked the witch. And then, while they were all still thinking how to answer her, she added, with another of her soft silver laughs, you see, when you try to think out clearly what this sun must be, you cannot tell me. You can only tell me it is like the lamp. Your sun is a dream. And there is nothing in that dream that was not copied from the lamp. The lamp is the real thing. The sun is but a tale, a children's story. Ah, yes, I see now, said Jill, in a heavy, hopeless tone. It must be so. And while she said this, it seemed to her to be very good sense. Slowly and gravely, the witch repeated, there is no sun. And they all said nothing. She repeated in a softer and deeper voice, there is no sun. After a pause, and after a struggle in their minds, all four of them said together, you are right, there is no sun. It was such a relief to give in and say it. There never was a son, said the witch. No, there never was a son, said the prince and the marsh wiggle and the children. For the last few minutes, Jill had been feeling that there was something she must remember at all costs. And now she did. But it was dreadfully hard to say it. She felt as if huge weights were laid on her lips. At last, with an effort that seemed to take all the good out of her, she said, there's Aslan. Aslan, said the witch, quickening ever so slightly the pace of her thrumming. What a pretty name. What does it mean? He is the great lion who called us out of our own world, said Scrub, and sent us into this to find Prince Rillian. What is a lion, asked the witch. Oh, hang it all, said Scrub. Don't you know? How can we describe it to her? Have you ever seen a cat? Surely, said the queen. I love cats. Well, a lion is a little bit, only a little bit, mind you, like a huge cat with a mane. At least it's not like a horse's mane, you know. It's more like a judge's wig, and it's yellow and terrifically strong. To which the witch shook her head. I see, she said that we should do no better with your lion, as you call it, than we did with your son. You've seen lamps, and so you imagined a bigger and better lamp and called it the sun. You've seen cats, and now you want a bigger and better cat. And it's so-called a lion. Well, tis a pretty make-believe, though, to say truth. It would suit you all better if you were younger, though. And look how you can put nothing into your make-believe without copying it from the real world, this world of mine, which is the only world. But even you children are too old for such play. As for you, my lord prince, that art a man full-grown, fie upon you. Are you not ashamed of such toys as these? Come, all of you, put away these childish tricks. I have work for you all in the real world. There is no Narnia, no overworld, no sky, no sun, no Aslan. And now to bed all. And let us begin a wiser life tomorrow. But first to bed, to sleep, deep sleep, soft pillows, sleep without foolish dreams. The prince and the two children were standing with their heads hung down, their cheeks flushed, their eyes half closed, the strength all gone from them, the enchantment almost complete. 
But Puddleglum, desperately gathering all his strength, walked over to the fire. Then he did a very brave thing. He knew it wouldn't hurt him quite as much as it would hurt a human, for his feet, which were bare, were webbed and hard and cold-blooded like a duck's. But he knew it would hurt him badly enough, and so it did. With his bare foot, he stamped on the fire, grinding a large part of it into ashes on the flat hearth. And three things happened at once. First, the sweet, heavy smell grew very much less. For though the whole fire had not been put out, a good bit of it had, and what remained smelled very largely of burnt marsh wiggle, which is not at all an enchanting smell. This instantly made everyone's brain far clearer. The prince and the children held up their heads again and opened their eyes. Secondly, the witch, in a loud, terrible voice, utterly different from all the sweet tones she had been using up till now, called out, What are you doing? Dare to touch my fire again, mud filth? and I'll turn the blood to fire inside your veins. Thirdly, the pain itself made Puddleglum's head for a moment perfectly clear, and he knew exactly what he thought. There is nothing like a good shock of pain for dissolving certain kinds of magic. One word, ma'am, he said, coming back from the fire, limping because of the pain. One word. All you've been saying is quite right. I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always liked to know the worst and then put the best face I can on it, so I won't deny any of what you said, but there's one thing more to be said, even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right, but four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's how I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't an Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't a Narnia. So, thanking you kindly for our supper, if these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready, we're leaving your court at once and setting out in the dark to spend our lives looking for overland. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think, but that small loss if the world's as dull a place as you say. This morning, O oh God, would you shine the light of Christ into every, every corner of our hearts. Give us assurance in you, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.